Amen. Well, good morning. And welcome to the house of the Lord this morning. Welcome to you who are listening and watching online also. I'm Pastor David Nigro filling in for Pastor Rick this morning, who is doing well, I would like to uh, also say, so lest you would worry about our beloved pastor. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles this morning to 2 Timothy, and this is going to be in chapter 1. The title of uh, this morning's message is Fearless. I'll read for us from verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. In this, his second letter to Timothy, his son in the faith, we find the tone of the Apostle Paul much different than in his first letter. In his first letter, he had a confident hope that he would be released from prison. And during that time, he was in much better conditions, being under a a form of house arrest. He would have the ability to have visitors, and they could bring him food and uh, clothing and and other necessities. And his guards, they they would be chained to his ankle and taking shifts. They had a longer length of chain that would allow a freedom of movement. And, And during this time, he could continue ministering. In fact, he had a captive audience with uh, some of those who were chained to him and, and had a chance to lead some of them to Christ. But now things are quite different. He is in a Roman prison that is under Nero's persecution of the church, and, and Paul finds himself in a, a cold, lonely cell awaiting what would be his impending death. He no longer has the many visitors that he once did, and he he feels as though all have abandoned him. He says, only Luke is with me. And he lacks the necessities that he had in his previous incarceration. Later in this letter, he'll ask Timothy to come quickly before winter and bring him his cloak. And he says, the books, and especially the parchments. And it's now that he, he takes to writing Timothy about continuing in the ministry, the one person that he feels can carry on his ministry after his death. And it appears by the content of this letter that that Paul suspects Timothy is afraid. And in what we know of Timothy, he appears to be somewhat timid in personality and, and not given to the rigors of ministry. Yet Paul knows that God can use him But the question is, does Timothy know that? Paul's aware that the end is near for him, and he he wants to pass this mantle of ministry on to Timothy. And in this letter, he will exhort him to continue faithfully in his duties, to hold on to sound doctrine, to avoid error, to accept persecution for the sake of the gospel, and to put his confidence in the scripture and to preach it relentlessly. But first, he reminds Timothy of his heritage in the faith. He reminds him that it was first in his grandmother and then his mother, and now it is in him. And he reminds him also in verse 6 to stir up the gift of God, which is in you by the laying on of my hands. And then comes our anchor verse for this morning's message. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. 
When deciding what I should uh, choose for a topical message, I, I seek the Lord on that. And oftentimes, one of the ways that he answers me is, is through the experiences that I have. For instance, if there is a, a dominant theme that just keeps coming up in my interactions with people, uh, or in some other way, there's something that's over a period of time just prevailing, then, then uh, God points it out. And I have to say that lately I've been witnessing an atmosphere of fear that is prevailing in the world around us. And in fact, there are those who are working very hard to promote it. I'd say in the media and our medical community, in politics and education, and even in some churches. Because fear is such a powerful emotion, it can be used to manipulate people. And it's being used to do just that and to divide and control people. And I want you to keep in mind that the devil knows this and he uses it in much the same way. As I talk with people, whether it's believers or unbelievers alike, they're all expressing things of great concern for them. Much of it, I think, comes from the uncertain future for them and and for their children. Particularly the events of the last two years, I think, have clearly shaken a lot of people up. You know, having a global virus, businesses shutting down, loss of jobs, uh, panic buying and empty shelves, all of these things uh, just of great concern. The burning and destroying of cities across America, the calls for defunding police, the chaos that ensued, and all of this leaves kind of a dystopian society in our future. And as a result, you have 8 million people who went out and bought guns for the first time last year. And this increase in fear, just it isn't my opinion alone. I mean, there's facts that support these things. Uh, just looking at uh, the number of prescriptions for antidepressants and anti-anxiety med- medications, uh, in one month in 2020, they went up 21%. Anti-anxiety meds went up 34% about the same time period. So the problem with that, of course, is, you know, using drugs and alcohol to suppress fears that isn't going to do anything for the problems at hand. In fact, it just creates a whole list of other problems. Now, God's altogether aware of how easily we can become afraid. In the Bible, the word love appears 361 times, but fear appears 367 times. And then the word afraid, another 216 times. Fear is a a powerful emotion, and it can have a legitimate purpose at times, right? Fear of heights is a good thing. Uh, But, you know, it isn't supposed to be an emotion that dominates our lives. And Paul says this is not who we are in Christ. When we're fearful, it, it makes it hard to think clearly and to behave rationally. And in some cases, it makes it hard to act at all because there is a a sort of paralysis that can come with fear. It can dominate our thoughts and it can dictate our actions. And in the most extreme example, I think it creates a bunker mentality where people turn all of their attention to self-preservation. And in the end, as Christians, how does that work? We're supposed to spend or expend ourselves serving the Lord. And preaching the gospel. And this is what Paul is trying to convey to Timothy. 
You know, the older I get, the more I come to understand that I, I can't control anything beyond my own actions, though I really want to. I desperately want to control everything. And, uh, you know, especially the things that scare me in life. I was sharing with the men uh, just last month. My wife and I were taking a trip in, in the beginning of October. And so I, I was looking at what hotels we would stay in. And I must have spent two hours online just going through hotels, reading reviews, looking at Google Streets, and all these things that just consumed my time trying to control the outcome of a short vacation. Whatever happened to just driving and finding the hotel? That's so much easier, isn't it? But we have these things at our fingertips, and we want to control it all, so we take the time and we try to make it right. I will tell you that one of the hotels was a great disappointment, I might add. So, so much for all of that. Uh, but we want to control everything, right? As much as we can. But the fact is you're unable to. And I know that brings about fear. Because the, the problem is, you see, we're all vulnerable. We're all dependent. And it, it is something that gives opportunity for fear. But it also gives an opportunity for you to trust God. As much as we want everything to be smooth sailing in life, there's a downside to that. And it's that if you... Never learn what it means to depend on God. You will never have reason to. And if you are never in a spot where God has to deliver you, then you will never experience what it is to be delivered by God. And let me tell you something. If you are in a place that only God can deliver you, and he does that for you, I tell you that it is powerful and it is personal, and it will affect you for the rest of your life. If given the choice, you might decide never to be in need of anything if you had the choice. But then without that dependency, you would not learn what it is to grow, to have faith, to depend on God. And as a result, you would not be able to be used by the Lord in your self-sufficiency. It would prevent him from being able to do that with you. The reality, you see, is that uh, life is automatically filled with things that are... Uh, of great concern to us. And God yet doesn't give us permission to be worried about them. Let's look at what Jesus has to say in Matthew 6. This is 31 through 34. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You know, God knows that we are prone to be fearful. But he first tells us to be about our heavenly father's business. And then he'll take care of those things. That doesn't mean you don't have any responsibility. I'm not telling you to go and quit your jobs, and God's just going to take care of it all, because the fact is it doesn't work that way. And I think you know that. But if we are so worried about our needs in this life that that's what dominates our lives, then we are not about our Father's business. We're about worrying about today's troubles and fixing them and not trusting God. You know, Timothy would have certainly had reason to, to be afraid. Looking at what is now happening to Christians is uh, 
they're being persecuted as the church is under siege. And Paul, the great apostle, and his mentor is in prison facing death. He would have had reason to be afraid. And Paul knows this, yet he tells him that this fear isn't from God. That's not what God has given to us. Instead, he says, we have been given a spirit of power. I like hearing that, don't you? I mean, power is something we want to have. When we think of it, I think we often think of strength. But this power isn't of ourselves that he's speaking, nor does it come from having physical strength. Listen to what Jesus tells Paul when he prays three times for God to remove a thorn in the flesh. This is 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. And Paul says this, And he said to me, speaking of Jesus, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, this taking pleasure in difficulties, I don't think it's literal. I don't think he's saying, I really enjoy this. I think what he's saying in this is that he understands that the power of God is through these experiences. This is where God's power is able and available in our lives. Prideful self-sufficiency does not allow us to tap into the power of God. He makes available to us in times of need and not in times of our own strength. If you operate in the strength of the flesh, you will fail in ministry. I promise you that. There are plenty of folks who do it, and they fail at it in the end. And the power that God gives to us, it is, it is for a specific purpose, the advancement of his kingdom. You know, after the resurrection and before the ascension of our Lord, he, he says this to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then in chapter 2 of Acts, we read during the day of Pentecost that there were those who were looking upon those, the Holy Spirit falling on those and, and them speaking in tongues as being drunk and wondering, you know, why would they be drinking? It's only at noon. And, and Peter, he begins preaching to the crowd. And as a result of this preaching, 3,000 souls are added to the church that day. This is the power that God gives. Here's another example of the power that God has given to us in action. This is after Peter and John had healed a man at the temple gate. This is a man lame from birth who was made to walk again. And as they began to preach the gospel, they, they caught the attention of the priests and the captain of the, the temple guard and, and the Sadducees, and they arrested them. They put him in jail that night. The next day, they take them out, and they begin to question them. And so after Peter and John addressed them, we pick up the response of, of these leaders as we read in Acts 4, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 4, 13 through 22. Now, 
when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. From now on, they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Did you catch that uh, they saw this boldness in Peter and John and knowing that they were uneducated and untrained men who they did not expect to have this boldness. They, They expected them to be in fear and trembling. They marveled at this. They knew that that they had been with Jesus. And so in the end, where they expected these men to be afraid and in fear and trembling, instead it was the other way around. They saw the power that was present in them because of the Lord, and they were afraid. You know, maybe you imagine these great heroes of the faith are, are somehow different than you and I that they maybe are a little superhuman when you read about them, you know. But the Bible doesn't reflect that at all. It's quite the opposite, really. And additionally, I don't know if you've noticed it, but God doesn't allow fear as an excuse for not serving him. He just simply doesn't. He's aware of our fears, as clearly we see in the Scripture. It is addressed so often, yet he passes it by And he holds us accountable to what he's called us to do. Let me give you some examples of this. So this is Joshua chapter 1. So now Moses has died. And Joshua is being put in his place. And it is now his responsibility to lead Israel across the river. But not only is this a a river crossing. He's going to have a campaign now of battles ahead of him. And they'll be fierce. And God knows that Joshua needs reassurance. And so he says this to him in in chapter 1, 5 through 9. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it 
to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Three times God tells him to be strong and courageous. That's not by mistake. You have to know that Joshua is frightened about this. He's been given this responsibility, and it's no doubt caused him to be fearful. I mean, wouldn't you be? Think about that. The responsibility and all that's in front of you that goes with that. And that God is looking for you to be the one to lead. I think it's quite normal to be afraid. And yet God doesn't excuse him and say, I'll find somebody else. He says, be strong and be courageous. I will be with you. And oftentimes I think that is the way it goes. You know, when we think about the Apostle Paul, we we see him as courageous just based on the things that he's persevered through. As you read through the Bible and you see him, he he is heroic in all that he has done. And yet, listen to what Paul has to say here to the church in Corinth. This is 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. He says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So as I look at this, what I take away is, you know, our Bible heroes are very much just like us. They really are. And I take great comfort in that. I need to know that because as I look at what God has called me to, and I see the struggles and the fears in my life, and all of the things that life presents in front of us, I think, okay, so sometimes you're going to be afraid. But that doesn't excuse what God has called you to do. You need to rely upon him, to trust him, and you need to move forward. You know, next, Paul, he he tells Timothy this, that God gave us a spirit of love. And, you know, I thought about this when, when they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment of all? And he says this in, in Mark 12, 31. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So beginning with an all-consuming love, we are first to be given to obedience to God above fear. Jesus said simply this, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so, you know, self-preservation, it's one of the strongest drives we have, and yet love demands that we take risks for those whom we love. It's the bottom line. 
And it's what it means to esteem others better than yourself. Part of which, for us as believers, is this in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. As Christ commands us to go into all the world, to preach the gospel and to make disciples. It's what we're here for. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Are we doing that? Are you afraid to do that? You know, seeing the examples uh, that we have in Scripture, I, I wonder, looking at recent times, why are churches shuttering their doors? And why are Christians okay with just being at home, separated from the body of Christ? I think there's a spirit of fear in the church today, and it's not from God. As I look around me, it, it, it appears as though we're being set up for persecution in the, in the coming days, and I think at an ever-increasing rate. Perhaps it's the Lord preparing his bride for his return. You know, in, in, in the church, the church per, persecuted is the church purified. There, there's a way that persecution, it burns off the dross. It removes the slag and it, it leaves that precious metal. And I think, well, what better way for God to distinguish those who love him from those who merely say, Lord, Lord, but don't know who he is. Obedience includes carrying out the will of the Father despite persecution. And, you know, persecution is all but guaranteed as a Christian. If you live openly for Christ, if you identify with Christ, you will be persecuted. It's going to happen. The Lord promised us that. In John 15, 18 through 20, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So if you live openly for Christ, get ready. Because you're going to receive persecution at some point. And if you don't, you might want to question why. Perhaps it is because you are not living openly for the Lord. You know, Timothy understood what was in front of him, I think. And that's what caused the fear. Well, Paul understood it too. But he wouldn't let him go at that. And he wants him to accept the fact that persecution is going to come and to embrace it, whatever may come, standing firm in the faith. That motivation to, to move forward uh, despite the opposition, that's, that's love. That's what, what love does. Love for God and love for those who need the gospel. And so the devil knows this. That's why he tries to get your fears to rule over you in this life. I, he knows that if you, you can get your eyes on you and your circumstances, you're likely to become afraid and fearful. And listen, fear drives out faith. It does. It pushes it right out. And it can keep you from moving forward in life. And therefore, it makes you unavailable to be used by the Lord. Let me give you just one small instance of that. There are those who, because they are afraid of failing in ministry, they don't ever step out in ministry. They're afraid to serve God because they're afraid they're going to fail. I might, not, I might not be able to do it. 
Well, if that's you, then you've already failed because you've buried your talent. Listen, God has called all of us in the church to ministry. It is a different ministry one to another, but it is all ministry. He's equipped you through the Holy Spirit, through the gifts that he has given to us. And so, what do you do with that? Do you sit on the sidelines and say, well, I don't, I don't have anything, or I'm afraid to use it? Because if you're doing that, then you're not putting to use what God has given to you, nor are you being obedient to him in that. I promise you that God has a plan for you in serving him. Whether or not you discover that is really up to you. But I I know that that is true. For many of you, many of you, I know it because I see it. I see you as you serve the Lord. I see you as you glorify him. I see you as he matures and develops you and uses you. Well, fear has also caused many lost souls to reject the salvation that only comes with faith in Christ because they know that it's going to cause difficulty for them, that it might drive a wedge between family and friends. In fact, they might lose that family. They might lose those friends because they've chosen Christ. And so it scares them. And they never step forward to receive Jesus. And listen, if if that's you this morning, then you would do well to fear God above all else. Because as the Bible says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. John writes this in 336. He says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Listen, make no mistake about who God is. God is perfect in love, but he is also perfect in judgment. And so every soul will give an account for their sin, and only those who have faith in Jesus Christ will escape the wrath of God. The Bible is explicitly clear on this. God makes no apology for it, but he does make a way of escape. You know, Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, he wrote this in Proverbs fourteen twenty seven. He says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. So if that's you this morning, if your alarm bell for eternity is going off, don't hit the snooze button. Don't. You need to respond today to Jesus Christ to receive salvation. It's available to you no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. If you come to Christ in earnest, Confess your sins. Believe upon him for the salvation of your soul. God will save you. I tell you, at the end of the service today, there will be pastors up here. I encourage you, if that's you, come. Pray with them to receive Christ. If you're listening, watching online, call the church. Ask a pastor to pray with you. But don't let today go by. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Because you're not promised tomorrow. Let me ask you something, Christian. Do you imagine that courage is the absence of fear? And what does it take to be courageous in this life? Courage is the ability to overcome fear and not the absence of it. Courage means I I can carry out those things I need to, even though there is sufficient reason to be afraid. In a courageous act, there is still fear. There is just courage overriding it to the point where 
that thing that needs to be done is being done despite the fear that goes with it. Something that's helped me, I, I find in life, to, to be courageous at times is this. Nothing can touch me that my Heavenly Father hasn't allowed. That's it. And that doesn't mean I can be reckless, nor am I encouraging us to be. But the fact of the matter is, I, I can move forward in that. Trusting Him and not knowing what the outcome is, but still knowing that God has got me. And if He allows something, then so be it. It's His will. And I can trust Him. And so, to me, that, that allows me to do what I need to do in spite of the things that make me afraid. You know, faith, I, I said, I think earlier, it overcomes fear. And it's, it's what allowed David to take out a giant with a sling and a rock when the entirety of, of Israel sat in the sidelines just trembling at the giant. And it's also what enabled Gideon to leave that place of hiding as he's threshing wheat and become a valiant man of God as he was used by God to lead Israel. I don't think it's any different for you and I. I you know, you can remain on the sidelines if you want to, or hiding below ground, or you can trust God and be used by him. It's really up to you. Lastly, Paul says that we've been given a, a sound mind. Uh, the Greek word here suggests a calm, disciplined, and self-controlled mind. In other words, a mind that's at peace. Isaiah wrote this in 26.3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. So herein lies the keys to having peace. First, it's a mind that's focused on God and not the object of our fear. And then it is to trust him. You know, it's our tendency to, to shift our focus, uh, I think, uh, from God to the, the thing that is frightening us. That becomes larger and God becomes smaller. When it's supposed to be the other way around. We're supposed to be viewing God as who he is. Larger than any of our fears. And enabling us to have peace. Paul knew that Timothy was afraid and he, he wanted him to know that his fear doesn't come from God. And I think that's important to understand. Because God has given us his peace. When Jesus was preparing his disciples for departure, he knew they would become fearful. And so he tells them this in John 14, 27. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So I think first we need to understand that remaining focused on God allows us to, to take possession of the peace that God gives to us. This peace, it isn't an absence of trouble, but it's a calm reassurance in times of trouble. 
knowing that he is with us and he will never leave you nor forsake you. But secondly, not only does our focus need to be on him, but we also need to trust him in this. You know, one of the greatest examples of not trusting God, I think, during fearful circumstances comes in Luke 8, this is 22 through 25. I think it's familiar to everyone here, perhaps. Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples, him being Jesus, and he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filled with water, filling with water, and they were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And then he arose, and he rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And so here... The disciples are in a boat, not a very big boat, I might add, and they're out on not a lake, but the Sea of Galilee. And in comes this storm, and the Lord is sleeping calmly, and they're panicking. I don't know if you've ever been in a boat out on the open water when a storm comes in, but it is ominous, and you feel very small very quickly. And so here... This storm is is raging, and the boat is starting to fill with water, and they have no Coast Guard to come get them, right? No ship to shore radio to call a mayday. No life preservers that they can hold on to when the boat sinks. So they're looking at this, and this is pretty bad. And they look over, and the Lord is asleep. And they're panicked. And so they're screaming out to him, Master, Master, we're perishing. And the Lord wakes up and he takes care of it. And then he looks at him and he says, where's your faith? Now, he had to know that they were, they were scared, right? I mean, I'm sure he knew this. But he didn't address that and say, oh, it's okay. I understand. He asks him, where's your faith? After all that you've seen, after all that you've been through with me, why are you concerned? And isn't that like us? I mean, when you're going through something that is just beyond you, and it is perilous, perhaps, you want to know, Lord, where are you? You wonder, because this is happening and he hasn't, he hasn't fixed it, is he paying attention? Does he know that you are perishing, so to speak? And I think this is natural for us. But I also, I also look at what God has to say in response to this. And he just simply says, where's your faith? So for us, I think it's very much the same thing. God wants to know where, where's our faith when these things are happening. What did he expect from them in that situation? And what does he expect from us when we're in similar situations? I think it's simply this, to trust him. To trust that he's aware of our circumstances, that he can deliver us from those circumstances, that his love for us is everlasting, and that it never fails, that we are his workmanship, and that we will be with him in glory for eternity, that we have been given a spirit of power, 
of love and of a sound mind. I'll close with this. Perfect love casts out fear. And that love is found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, we uh, thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that uh, though at times we are afraid, Lord, that that is not from you, that you have given to us so much more. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us to see you in the midst of the storm, Lord, to trust you in whatever it is that we're going through. And, Lord, that you would be glorified as a result. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done. And we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand, please? Pastors are on my left and right for prayer and praise reports this morning. As you go out this week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance to you and may he give you peace. And to that, the righteous say, Amen. Amen.